You're now listening to episode 79 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli back here today with Brian Eastman, Principal and Senior Consultant at Safeguard Advisors, an innovative provider of self-directed retirement plans for individuals and entrepreneurs who want to take control of their wealth-building future. Safeguard Advisors specializes in the establishment of checkbook IRAs and solo 401k plans that provide investors with maximum control and flexibility over their retirement account investments. Brian joined us back on episode 31 to discuss various aspects of self-directed retirement accounts, but today we're going to focus on special tax issues related to self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks, including what generates unrelated debt financed income, also known as UDFI, and unrelated business taxable income, also known as UBTI, and the potential tax impacts of each. If you invest in syndicated real estate investments or other alternative assets through self-directed retirement accounts, this is an episode made for you. Hey, everyone. I want to let you know that we'll be hosting the first ever tax and legal virtual summit specifically for real estate investors coming up Saturday, February 29th and Sunday, March 1st. At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from the top legal and tax experts in the industry. Topics include the real estate professional status, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you work so hard to build. Head over to www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. Again, that's www.taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code RECPA for 50% off your tickets. See you there. But for now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. You're actually our first returning guest. Before we dive right in, would you just mind, uh, just remind our audience of what your background is and what your company, Safeguard Advisors, does for investors and business owners? Sure. Yeah, Safeguard Advisors is a specialty provider of self-directed retirement plans that offer what we call checkbook control. So we build and support vehicles allowing investors to diversify their tax-sheltered retirement savings into alternative assets, things like real estate, private lending, private you know syndications, things of that nature. So that's our, our, our business. It's a pretty specialty little niche, uh, something we've been doing for, oh gosh, 15 years, working with thousands of clients all across the country. Uh, I'm a principal with the firm uh, and senior consultant. Uh, where I work mostly, you know, out, out on the front lines, working with clients every day. I have many, many thousands of clients I've worked with, and I'm primarily a consultant and an educator. I bring these complex worlds of alternative asset investing and the tax code into plain English and, and, and practical application for the clients we work with. So in terms of setting folks up with a plan, that's phase one of our goal, and then helping clients get the most out of those plans with quality information about you know what they can and can't do, things we're going to talk about today, things that can have tax implications even inside of a tax-sheltered retirement plan. That, that's what we do. Awesome. So I remember during our first your first appearance in episode 31, we went through a lot of different various topics on self-directed retirement accounts. But today, 
We're just going to focus on the tax issues that can occur when you're doing transactions and such plans. So at a high level, when does a self-directed retirement plan need to be concerned about the potential tax exposure? Sure. So, you know, generally speaking with a retirement plan and what we're all used to in the stock market is, you know, nothing is taxed. Well, there's some exceptions to that that um, you need to be aware of. And there's really two types of activities that generate taxation. One is when a tax exempt, such as a retirement plan, uses debt financing leverage to, uh, to, to be uh, precise, you know, like mortgage financing, uh, various, various forms, you know, margin trading in the stock market, things like that. That use of non-plan money inside the plan envelope creates a tax exposure on what's called unrelated debt financed income. And that's one of the topics that we'll want to talk about today. Separately, when a tax-exempt entity is acting like a trader business and receiving income that's deemed to be trader business income, then it's out there competing with tax-paying businesses, and there's a different type of taxation, what's called unrelated business taxable income that's being generated and taxed. And so those are the two. So it's, it's, it's using leverage or acting like a business create types of income that are taxed. And then the type of tax that's paid and, the, and the, the acronym that's always thrown around is UBIT, stands for Unrelated Business Income Tax. That's like saying income tax. That's just the broad, hey, when you have tax exposure through one of those types of activities, the tax you're going to pay is called UBIT. So that's a more generic term, but that's what people always uh, refer to. What really matters is UDFI for Unrelated Debt Financed Income and UBTI for Unrelated Business Taxable Income. Got it. Got it. So what type of activities actually create the UDFI? Yeah, let's talk about that one first. It's more common and it's really pretty easy to get your mind around and, and, and it's not really a big deal. It's something to be aware of as an investor, but it's not really a deal breaker. Uh, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, there's a tax in my IRA and they panic and they run the other direction. I'll pay a little bit of taxes to get a higher rate of return. And UDFI is going to be that kind of a situation. Unrelated debt financed income, as I mentioned, is, is generated when a tax exempt is using non-plan funds, borrowed money in the case of a mortgage as an example, to accelerate growth. So where we commonly see that is you know, somebody's going to go buy a rental house with their retirement plan and instead of paying all cash, they're going to use mortgage financing. So the percentage of the income that the plan is receiving from the borrowed money is uh, taxable. Oh, in a moment, sort of walk through just a simple example of what it looks like. And then uh, that, you know, that also applies in larger scenarios. A very popular type of investing today is real estate syndications, where a bunch of investors pool together as limited partners in a partnership that's going to buy a larger real estate project. Well, most of those use debt as well. And even that indirect um, linkage between the plan and the, and the debt, still you're, you're still receiving that debt financed income. Uh, and then there's other things that we don't so commonly see, you know, stock trading on margin, um, certain types of leveraged corporate transactions. Those are less less common, but mostly it's mortgage financing that creates UDFI. All right, cool. So, so debt creates UDFI. When does UBIT or UBTI occur? Yeah, so unrelated business taxable income is something that applies when a tax exempt, which includes retirement plans as well as, you know, churches and hospitals and other types of nonprofits, but when, when a tax exempt is engaging in a trader business on a regular or repeated basis. 
And in that case, it's basically, you know, acting like a commercial enterprise, competing with commercial enterprises. And in order to level the playing field and protect those tax-paying businesses, there's this tax on the unrelated business taxable income. A real common example is like in the real estate space. I know that's a focus for you guys and your, your listeners. Uh, active real estate things like flipping of homes, new home construction for immediate sale, certain types of, of projects and, and properties that are really providing more of a service like a hotel. Um, that income that's, that's dealer income, I'm just buying and selling, or services income, those are going to create unrelated business taxable income. And that can be a real deal killer. The, the rates get to be pretty high pretty quick, and there's not as many write-offs as there are in UDFI, so it can erode your returns. And it's something generally to be worked around. You want to find transaction types that aren't going to be subject to UBTI. So how do UDFI and UBTI, what is the interplay there with real estate syndications? I know you recently released a white paper on this Mm -hmm. topic specifically, which we can link up in the show notes. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to kind of just walk through that topic. Sure, sure. So in a real estate syndication, you know, the common example is, you know, pulling a bunch of investors together to buy a large apartment complex. That's not going to create UBTI. The income produced from that project is rent from real property. That's passive. That's not exposed to, it's not considered trade or business income. And even then, there, there's certain types of activities within those projects. Uh, income from rental of a personal property, certain you know, nominal services, parking or, or laundry or whatever that are trade or business income. But, and I apologize, I forget the threshold off the top of my head, but if they're a small portion of the overall income, then they're ignored. You don't need to worry about it. And it's, it's, a, it's a decent number. It's, I want to say like 25 or 30%. So as long as it's rent from real property, which most of these projects are, we're not concerned about UBTI. But most of these projects use a combination of investor capital as a down payment and then borrowed money. They're very commonly 70 to 75% debt financed. So we do have exposure to UDFI. So the deal is, is that, you know, say, you know, you take a $100,000 investor. Oh, shoot. I wish I should have my, my worksheet open. I, I might pull it open in a minute. But um, $100,000 investor might be 1% of an overall deal. Well, 75% of that 1% of the income that they're receiving is deemed to be taxable. The bottom line is you pay fractionally. So if 75% of the investment is debt financed, 75% of the gross income is viewed as taxable. It's viewed as the unrelated debt financed income. And just real quick, that's the allocable income to me, right? So if I receive $10,000 net income, the debt, the deal was 75% debt financed, then $7,500 of that 10000 is subject to UDFI. Generally speaking, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's your gross income minus your expenses and, and whatnot. But yeah, you, in most of those syndications, they line up pretty cleanly. But yeah, your ballpark numbers there are pretty much on. So, you know, in that case, you know, 75% of your gross income is viewed as UDFI as subject to taxation. You then get to apply the same ratio, in this case, 75% of all the normal deductions that you would have as an after-tax investor to offset that taxation. So just like, you know, if you're buying a rental property personally, you get depreciation, you get your interest payments on your note, you get your operating expenses like property tax and insurance and things like that. So you apply all of those in that same ratio of 75%, and that's going to dramatically reduce that 75% gross income number to a much, much smaller net taxable number. 
So you're not taking net income times 75%, because I'm assuming that would probably give you a different answer. You're doing gross income times 75%, and then minus all of your normal operating expenses times 75%. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So th- there's three numbers. There's your debt financing ratio, and that does tweak a little bit over time. It's your, your current indebtedness over your valuation, you apply depreciation to it. And so that that number scales a little bit over time, but to get your average indebtedness and your outstanding debt and you get your debt financing ratio. And it's that ratio that's applied both to income and expenses and coming up with the net taxable number. And again, in the white paper, there's some big picture numbers and, and examples of the math on how that works. We don't need to get into the, the weeds on all that necessarily here today. But the idea is you know, 75% of your income is taxable, 75% of your deductions apply, and there's a $1,000 exemption against UDI just right off the top, which for your average you know, $100,000 investor receiving 10000 of income on a project that's a decent amount that's also getting wiped out. You know, you start working with a million dollars and that $1,000 exemption buys you a little less. So you get your net taxable number and then that number's run through the trust tax table. The IRA is the, t- the, the taxpayer. It's a separate entity from the individual. It's, firing, it's filing its own separate tax return, what, what's called the 990T. And you, know, you, you run through the trust tax table. It's a, it's a scaled table. You know, the ratchets up, it's about $12,500 of income. You get into the maximum trust bracket of 37%. But most of your income in most of these deals is going to be below that. I think, you know, you can look at your effective tax rate on these things. And it's usually more like 7 or 8% for your average investor. You're not paying 37%. A lot of people think, oh my gosh, I'm paying 37% on 75% of my income. Absolutely not the case. The deductions and everything completely wipe that out. So you're paying, generally speaking, an effective tax rate more in the you know, six to eight percent range. So it, it's usually not a big hit. I mean, in the, in that white paper, you know, we show we're in the first couple of years. There's no tax liability at all. You know, the acquisition costs and the rehabs and and, and whatnot that are taking place in your typical syndication in those those first years. The value add portion offset the income to the degree where there's not taxation, as you get farther down, you're going to average about a half a percent of your return being eaten up in taxes. So if a, if a, uh, a syndication investment is going to produce 13.5% return, you're going to get 13%. It's just not a big bite. So as an investor, I've got $50,000 sitting in my self-directed IRA or solo 401k, and I'm looking at a syndication, I'm about to pull the trigger. What things should I be considering with this UDFI UBIT conversation? Like, what are some quick hitting tips that you would tell all investors? Hey, make sure that you check these things out related to the syndication investment before you pull the trigger. Sure. Main thing is, you know, get a professional on your team who can help you, you know, run the numbers. Generally speaking, I mean, it's so hard to really do a precise calculation in advance. You're not seeing K-1s. All you have are projections from the, the plan sponsor. You don't have real numbers and whatnot. So that analysis that we've done, you know, if you look at it in your frame and say, yeah, you're, this is about what your tax cost is going to be. It's nominal. So you, you don't get overly concerned with that. And again, again, just sort of that ballparking, hey, we're going to lose half a percent of return. So you look at what the, the plan sponsor is proposing as their return. You say, okay, let's shave that by maybe be conservative and call it a percent. It probably won't be, but a good way to be an investor, always you know, go, go conservative on your numbers. Look at that and say, is that return still appealing to me? And what are my downsides and whatnot? The main thing is just being aware 
that this is part of the equation, having a professional on their team who can help with preparing the return, knowing what records they're going to need to keep, which in the case of these syndications is real easy. You hand the K-1 that you get from the general partner to your CPA. You're not doing the books. You're just handing that K-1. So just really being aware that it's part of the issue is, is the main thing. Got it. Got it. And also it's something you discussed in the white paper was that in in under using while using a solo 401k, there's actually an exemption for a UDFI. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's you know two types of self-directed retirement plans. Pretty much anybody can set up an individual retirement arrangement. And that's the more common format. I think probably about 70% of our clients are in that. For people who qualify by being both self-employed and also having no full-time employees, they can set up an individual or an owner-only version of a 401k. And 401ks are a different section of the tax code with some different rules. Um, one of the great benefits, on, on the investment side, the IRA and the 401k are largely identical. Rules against self-dealing and all that kind of stuff. But the one place where there's a distinct difference is in this exposure to UDFI. A solo 401k is exempted from tax on unrelated debt financed income in a narrow case when the debt financing has to do with the acquisition of real property. So direct purchases of rental property or participation in a syndication where the purpose of the syndication is to purchase real property, that's going to create UDFI, but the solo 401k gets an exemption. So it doesn't have to deal with the complexities of a tax return and it's not going to have the tax cost, which makes it a more favorable vehicle for people who qualify. Key point I like to make is not everybody qualifies and trying to force qualification is not a smart move. The cost of taxation in an IRA is nominal. The cost of not being compliant with the setup of your 401k is significant. So uh, we'll always look at an individual situation, but when people do fit that bandwidth of self-employed, no full-time employees, that gives them the option of the 401k. And, and, and we're going to certainly lean in that direction when we can. Following up with that, we often see you know a lot of self-employed individuals discover the solo 401k, and they also have a self-directed IRA already open. That self-directed IRA contains, say, a multifamily syndication investment they made, and they now want to transfer that from the self-directed IRA to the solo 401k plan to avoid UBIT. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. You know, obviously, you, you know, you'd rather know about it first and go straight into the, the right vehicle. That'd be more efficient. But yeah, we, we, we run into that same issue uh, actually in both directions. We'll have people who start with a 401k and go out of qualification. They hire employees or they shut down their business and they have to go in the opposite direction to an IRA. But in most cases, IRAs and 401ks are going to be compatible with each other. You can transfer from one format to the other. You can transfer assets in kind. Um, you just need to retitle and assign the assets. So you, you can generally, without tax implications, move some issues if we've got, you know, tax deferred and Roth and, you know, in, incompatible types. But yeah, you, you can move around. All right. So we've discussed that rents from real property are exempt from UBTI, UBIT. Mm-hmm. By the way, is it UBIT or UBTI? Well, UBIT is the tax that's paid. That's kind of like saying income tax. UBTI is the type of income that one of the two types of income that generates UBIT exposure. So UBTI generates UBIT. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. So rents from real property are exempt from UBTI. Mm -hmm. 
but there's an exclusion for hotels, storage units, parking lots, and we think senior assisted facilities. What's your take on this? You're right. Uh, you know, it's it's a IRC section 512 talks about this, and basically, you know, rents from real property are deemed to be passive income. Some of those other things you talked about hotels, parking, senior facilities, self-storage, those are services businesses. Somebody's not really renting the real property. The property is a component of a service. Come stay at our resort. Come store your stuff in our warehouse facilities, things like that. So that's services income, not rental income. And then it is it is going to be treated as trader business income and subject to UBTI. Got it. Got it. And I think you had also mentioned uh, before that flipping, flipping also generates UBTI. Could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah. You know, earlier we said in the real estate space, two of the most common areas that are considered to be trade or business are, you know, flip transactions, buy, rehab, sell. You don't even have to do the rehab if you're buying and selling. It's that dealer activity. There's no passive income coming off that real property. It's a dealer activity. You're just buying and selling properties, just like, you know, buying and selling used cars or something like that. So that's considered a a trader business, a new home construction for immediate sale, what we call spec home uh, development uh, is also more of a trader business activity. So those are, those are two activities that have uh, exposure to UBTI. So they're typically not going to be the most suitable strategies. Is there any alternative approaches to, if say someone did want to flip a property, is there any way they get around that? Sure. Well, you don't really get to flip and get around it, but you can see this opportunity. If that's the opportunity that aligns with your market and your expertise and the team to put money into, say, property flipping, as an example. Well, there's a couple of different approaches. One would be, I mean, I've seen this. I've got clients who do this. They're in good markets. They got good teams in place. They're making really good money. And they say, well, using an IRA to flip where I'm going to pay 37% taxes on the gains may not be the most efficient way to flip houses, but even after that tax, I'm still getting 20, 25, 28% net return after tax to my IRA. I'm not doing anything else in my IRA that's generating that return. So full speed ahead, pay the taxes, laugh all the way to the bank. That's one option. That's pretty rare. The numbers are usually not going to be that good. So there's other approaches that can take that opportunity and make it a passive income opportunity that isn't going to have the UBTI generating. One would be, instead of having an IRA or a 401k be the flipper, have the IRA or the 401k be the bank. So somebody else is out flipping houses and your plan is simply lending them capital for that purpose. You know, typically rates are going to be, you know, two to three points. Uh, 12 to 15% income is pretty common for that short-term rehab money. That's interest income, which is passive, but it's a pretty good rate of return. You're turning your money over pretty quickly. It's a nice type of investing that a lot of people choose to do. So that's one route. The other route is something that we, we, we sort of coined this phrase. We call it a hybrid flip. And, you know, the issue is flipping isn't about your acquisition strategy. Buying a property at discount and adding value by rehabbing that property doesn't in and of itself make it a business. It's immediately turning around and selling. So if you buy a property, fix it up, but then hold it as a rental for at least 12 months, then you're operating as a passive asset now. And in the future, 12 months after first renting, you um, dispose of that property by selling it. That's no longer deemed to be a flip transaction. Now you're disposing of what you've operated as a passive asset. There's no tax implications. So you can get that added value of the rehab 
tax-free back into the IRA and you're not going to get hit with UBTI eroding that gain. So it takes a little more patience, takes a willingness to be a landlord, might take, you know, a secondary little, you know, minor fresh up rehab on the backside, depending on who you're selling to, but it, it can be a way to, you know, engage in those flip style transactions and, and still get a full uh, tax sheltered return. So we, we like that strategy as well. All of this makes a lot of sense. Um, thanks for sharing the insight. Uh, so if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or your company, what would be the best way for them to do so? Just go to the website. It's www.ira123.com. Uh, the phone number's there. There's a get started page where you can you know, send in a, a form or we can even self-schedule a consultation. It all starts with typically about a 20 to 30 minute initial consultation. We'll identify, you know, what type of plan is going to be suited for people. It's all, it's all about putting a puzzle together. What kind of money do you have? What's your employment status? Things like that. So we figure out what kind of plan. Uh, we walk the client through all the details of the services and, and what it looks like in timelines. And then we really, again, focus on usage and rules and understanding these types of topics that we've been talking about today. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure uh, taking your time out to share the knowledge with our listeners. And we're going to be looking forward to releasing this. Excellent. Well, hey, thanks for having me, guys. All right. So we're here with the debrief segment of today's podcast. We talked about UBTI and UDFI, uh, two types of taxes that you may be faced with if you're investing in alternative assets such as real estate through retirement accounts. And it's a question of confusion. A lot of clients always ask us about this and how it's going to impact it, how it's going to impact their tax situation. I think it causes, like you know, like Brian said, a little bit more headaches than necessary in terms of calculating your exposure. Uh, usually, it is nominal. In my experience, from all of the calculations I ever ran on it, the most I've ever seen it being hit is somewhere between one to two percent, which is somewhat in line with what Brian was saying. Uh, but I was really happy that Brian came in there, cleared some of that up for us today. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out the white paper that we've linked up here in the show notes for everybody. I think it would dispel a lot of your fears if you're thinking about investing in a syndication via solo 401k or self-directed IRA, just in terms of what that exposure might actually be to UBIT. But it's it's relatively nominal at the end of the day. And to recap what Brian was kind of talking about when you invest in syndications, you know, the rents from the multifamily property are not going to be subject to UBTI. But if the property is financed via mortgage financing or, or any other sort of debt, then it is subject to UDFI, and that's where the taxes can come into play. But solo 401ks or 401ks in general are not subject to UDFI. So while we didn't really get into it, one good recommendation would be to consider using your 401k to invest in a multifamily syndicate rather than a self-directed IRA because the solo 401k is not going to be subject to UDFI. And if the multifamily syndication is not subject to UBTI, then you're kind of good to go. You've got two birds, one stone right there. One other thing that I, uh, that I just wanted to emphasize is UBTI is not UBIT. UBTI is Unrelated Business Taxable Income. That describes the income that is subject to tax. UBIT is unrelated business income tax. So that is the tax at the end of the day. I know that there's a lot of firms out there, and I've even done it. We use it interchangeably, but that is Brian laid, laid it to us straight and told us exactly, exactly how to use the terminology, which I love. All right. So our question for today, thank you very much, Wayne, for submitting this. And if you want to submit a question, go to our podcast page on our website, therealestatecpa.com. And you can submit a question there. It's just a little form. 
but Wayne submitted the question, are capital gains taxed at up to three brackets, similar to marginal rates for income taxes, or is the higher 15 to 20% rate applied retroactively to the entire amount? Great question. So the way it works is you have your ordinary income. If you look at it like one of those sand things where you pour different colors of sand into it, you're going to have your ordinary income goes into the bottom layer. Then your capital gain sits on top. Um, the portion of the capital gain that's under the threshold for the 20%, and that threshold is $425,800 for single individuals and $479,000 for married couples. Anything above that threshold would be taxed at 20%. So any gains below that threshold are taxed at the 15% rate, gains above that threshold are taxed at the 20% rate. However, there's another tax in there that you have to worry about if you are over $200,000 or $250,000 if you're married, and that is the net investment income tax. And that is going to apply an additional 3.8% tax rate to that capital gains rate. So you could be gain tax at the max rate of 23.8% at the federal level. Bingo. So there's the ordering rules that say you look at your current income first, then capital gains. And if capital gain income pushes you into different brackets, then you've got the different capital gain tax brackets to deal with. And like you said, there's that 3.8% net investment income tax. And it's interesting because the net investment income tax applies to a lot of different things, and it can also apply to rental income. So be careful with that tax. But that tax is in place to essentially help pay for Obamacare. That's when it was all implemented. All right, folks. So that's a wrap for today's episode. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Again, remember, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcast, drop your question into the box, and we may just answer it right here in the podcast. Also. Just want to remind everybody, we will be uh, putting on a virtual tax and legal summit for real estate investors. This can include a lot of strategies on around asset protection and taxes that can help you reduce your tax liability and protect your assets. You're going to learn from top tax and legal experts. It's going to be really exciting. You go to taxandlegalsummit.com to learn more. It will be going on February 29th. So there is the 29th day of February in 2020 and on March 1st. So we'll look forward to seeing you there and it's gonna be a great one, don't miss it. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.